This is Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. Your host, Carl Valeri, has over a decade of experience counseling pilots. Aviation Careers Podcast will help you navigate towards your aviation career goal. Here is your host, Carl Valeri. Welcome to the Inspirational, Informational, and Transparent Aviation Careers Podcast. Today, we answer your questions. Remember, if you have a question, email us at feedback at Aviation Careers Podcast. Uh, before we begin, just a few news, uh, news items and announcements. First of all, coming up is the Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And in celebration of that, you know, I've been loving these coupons and, and giving away stuff. So I decided from now all the way to Martin Luther King Jr. Day, we're giving 10% off all of our uh, courses, including coaching, the scholarships guide, uh, the practical guide to winter flying, all those different courses. You can find that aviationcareerspodcast.com slash courses. Another thing that people have been asking me about is how about coaching? You know, how do I schedule coaching and those type of things? Well, uh, just look at our coaching calendar and hopefully it'll fit into your schedule. If uh, it does, go ahead and purchase the coaching. We do book usually uh, two to three weeks out right now. Sometimes something comes open. You never know, like just happened uh, for tomorrow, that type of thing. You might find something in the schedule, but you have to book at least 24 hours in advance. So take a look at the schedule there. What we do on the coaching, it's uh, more like career counseling, coaching, uh, interview preparation, trying to, to help you you know, move forward in your career. There's a whole video. The reason it's set up as a video course because there's all these things that we want you to do and in succession, that type of thing. Also, make sure you follow us on Facebook and Twitter and sign up for our email list to learn more about some of the promotions and the discounts we've been having. Uh, I'm actually having a lot of fun with that right now. Also, every time we come out with an episode, we put out an email uh, so that you won't miss an episode. Well, today, we're going to be doing some listener mail, and joining me is... Uh, someone who used to do some recruiting for a regional airline is now is a major airline pilot, and that's Robert Geyer. Hey, Robert, welcome uh, back to the show. Howdy, howdy, Carl. How you doing? I am doing wonderful and uh, had a wonderful holiday season. Not with my family. <laughs> I, uh, I worked both Christmas and New Year's this year. Uh, how about you, Robert? Were you flying those days? No, I was uh, off. I was very fortunate. So um, I got to enjoy them at home. Awesome. And so why is it that Robert had those days off and I didn't have those days off? Well, uh, it all depends on seniority and the base you're in. I'm currently in a base that's super duper senior. Even though people tell me I'm really senior at the company I'm at, I'm really not comparatively speaking in the base I'm in, I'm in right now because everybody else wants to go to this base, right? And that's actually what happens when you're in what's called a senior base. If I was in another base like New York, uh, like with many airlines, a lot of people don't want to go there because it's so darn expensive to live there. Uh, luckily, Robert, you've had a wonderful schedule. I could have had those days off if I decided to go back on reserve. Uh, a little something about the bidding system uh, just to, might interest you, the listener, is that uh, we can actually bid reserve. Even though you're a line holder, you can bid back to reserve. And a lot of people do that during the holiday seasons. I decided I didn't want to do that. And uh, one of the reasons is that on holidays, I actually get double pay. So that's uh, that's pretty cool. So, Robert, I know uh, you've been with your current airline for a few years. Uh, the base that you're in right now, is it considered a junior or a senior or somewhere in between? Yeah, it's, it's pretty junior. Uh, so just to give listeners an idea... I'm 40, so I've been with my airline three years, and I got hired at the beginning of a hiring wave, so I'm 
now 47% in my base. And ironically, Carl, uh, you know, I looked at uh, your base, Orlando, uh, obviously a different airline, but we have the same base uh, bases and we overlap a few cities. So I looked at Orlando to see where I'd be because we were just tossing around the idea. Hey, what, do, what would it look like if we moved back to Florida? I'd be 71% in Orlando versus 47% in Houston. Plus, upgrade time would be through the roof in Orlando where I'm looking at possibly a seven to eight year upgrade if things keep going the way they're going for Houston. So uh, I love, uh, I love Florida and I love uh, the surf. It's more consistent than it is here in Texas and uh, all that. And the water's nicer, but it's just not worth me giving up those 20 uh, something percent of, uh, of seniority points. So I think I'll stay here. And that's a choice that many people make is staying in base because of just that, the upgrade times. And uh, interestingly, you said that because the base that I'm in, like you said, Orlando, I'm at 70% right now. And if I went back to, say, I don't know, New York base, I'd be around 12 to 18%. I'm super senior. Uh, I actually have been able to hold captain for years uh, up in the senior bases, or excuse me, in the junior bases being in uh, the north and the the cities of like, a, you know, a New York City area, that kind of thing. So these are all decisions you make when you're a pilot. Something to think about, because just, just think about what we just said. These are two separate airlines. And if you're trying to decide where you want to live and which airline you want to go with, uh, this could make the difference uh, between moving or not moving, whether you want to upgrade to captain or not. Uh, interestingly, too, uh, where I am in base right now, I will never make captain until uh, three years after I retire based on the estimates. That could change, obviously, if they decide to make the base bigger. But currently, no, I will never hold captain in the base that I'm based in right now. Uh, so that's in like even like 15 or 16 years from now estimated. And I have to retire, I think in like 14 or so years. So obviously that's not going to happen. But uh, so anyway, so that's something else to think about when you're looking at, uh, I know airline pilot central has a list of all the different upgrade times and the different bases. So I would, I would encourage you to look back at those and look at the most junior bases and, uh, based on, you know, where you want to be, that may not be the place you want to go. It may be a different airline that you want to go to. Uh, we hear that every, every so often you'll see people leave our airline or any other airline and they'll, and they'll be here for like five years, which is, I mean, you'd think that's crazy to leave an airline after five years, but they're like, Hey, I live in this city and that's where they have a base and that's where I'm going to move. Uh, a lot of those decisions are being made now because of the base, but Anyway, a little inside baseball. Hopefully that helped uh, uh, kind of start getting you thinking about maybe this is what I want to do. Maybe I want to start thinking about bases, not just uh, the airline I want to go to. Anyway, let's get on with our first question, our first email. He comes in and says, uh, and by the way, we're, we're finally up to uh, October of uh, 2018, so we're catching up on the emails. This is great. Uh, it says, uh, thanks for the great podcast. I've been listening for almost a year now. I've been flying GA and military air for 20 years, and I'm looking to transition to commercial in a few years' time. Uh, question is, as a backseater in F-15E, uh, how do I log time? I hold an instrument rating, airplane single-engine land, and airplane multi-engine land. Uh, can I log PIC and and when I am the sole manipulator of the controls? When I'm not the sole manipulator of the controls, can I log any other time such as total or SIC time under 6151, Foxtrot, or 
the regulations under which the flight is being conducted. Is there anything else I am missing? I know this is a niche question, but that keeps going around our community. Thanks for the help. I appreciate all you do. Well, I appreciate that question. I was actually not going to read this question. And the reason being is that I don't have a straight answer for you. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to find out for you. And I know there's other people listening who have been through this. Uh, we have uh, a bunch of students at the college that have gone through this route. And uh, usually when you are a sole manipulator of control, you can log PIC, but uh, that's also, uh, that it all depends. <laughs> so you may just be logging it as uh, SIC because SIC is the time that you're logging. Say when you're at an airline, uh, you're not the actual pilot in command. You're the second in command. You are the one that's going to be uh, logging SIC. Some people never log PIC in their 10, 15 year history at an airline because of that. Because even though they're the sole manipulator of the controls, they're logging the landings, the instrument approaches, etc. They are not PIC. They're only SIC. So, uh, so that's a good question. Uh, currently, I'd say it's probably SIC, but I'm not going to answer that. Uh, I'm going to get back to you on that. But I really want—I wasn't going to read that, but I wanted to throw it out there. Um, Anyway, on to the next question. It was a good question, by the way, and we'll, we'll definitely get back to you on that. And, but any listeners have an answer they want to throw in, that's fine. Uh, currently, uh, since you're not the pilot in command, I would say uh, I would log it as SIC, but I'll find out for you. Next question comes in says, Hey, Carl, first off, I'd like to extend my appreciation to you and your team for putting an, out an amazing podcast and service to us aspiring pilots. Uh, I, well, gosh, I really appreciate your listening. I'm glad it's helping you. He continues, I've wrote in before in regards to shift scheduling in the airlines, and your response with the help of your guest was fantastic. Thank you. I have one further question to ask regarding pilots in Canada. As stated before, I currently have a six-figure income here in Canada, which scares me to walk away from. I'm passionate about my job. However, my true love has always been in aviation. Currently a private pilot working towards my multi-IFR ratings, and so that will lead to my commercial license. Here's my question. I've heard from different sources that Canadian and American Airlines are offering signing bonuses to new pilots. Is this true? And if so, how does this work? Also, how long does it take for your average pilot to reach that six-figure mark? I'm very lucky to have such a supportive fiancé that has helped push me through everything. However, being the breadwinner, I don't want to cause too much financial stress on our family through this. I want to thank you for your time in reading and responding to my question I eagerly await your response. All the best, blue skies. Well, thanks so much for that uh, question from Canada. And yes, it is true. They are offering bonuses. Uh, both Canada American bonuses seem to be a little bit more lucrative right now. And also, these are... Uh, <laughs> okay, he asked about the signing. But these Sometimes when you see a signing bonus, it isn't what you may consider a signing bonus. So the average individual, when you say that there's a signing bonus, I would say I'm going to work and you're going to give me $10,000, right? And I'm, I'm expecting a check when I go there. Well, that's not totally true. The signing bonuses are sometimes graduated. So, for instance, if they say there's a $10,000 signing bonus, you may not get the whole $10,000. You may only get $5,000, and then you'll get another $5,000 as long as you stay for another five months. Uh, so that is actually what you're looking at there as far as signing bonuses. And uh, the, it's really, um, there are some airlines out there. I know there's another, uh, we were supposed to have another airline on this week. And they explain the fact that their signing bonus is a signing bonus. Uh, you'll also see numbers like 
make $70,000 in your first year. Yes, you'll make $70,000. And this is an important point. That would be in your bonuses, your signing bonuses, retention bonuses, and also they include healthcare and things that you don't see right away, like your 401k. I understand it. I get it. They're right. They are. You are getting a seventy thousand dollars in your first year, uh, but it's not actually going to be in your paycheck. So another thing I would encourage you to do, if you're looking at these bonuses, is kind of whittle out all that and see what your actual paycheck is going to be, and that's what you need to go on because you know what? You pay the groceries with your paycheck, not with your four hundred one k, and not with your health care. So it's really important to know that you can actually pay for the groceries. Uh, and that's that's something that I, I really strictly believe in. Uh, I know, Robert, when you were uh, doing some recruiting, actually, for an airline that is going to be on the show, they also have turned to, well, everybody's turned to signing bonuses. Did they have signing bonuses when you left? I, I'm not sure. No, and it made it very hard uh, to compete in a recruiting market at that time. But no, we did not. Okay, so you actually had to say, hey, listen, come on here. And there's a couple of regionals out there that aren't offering bonuses. And it's quite difficult. Um, one of the things, though, Robert, I know, and you can use your experience, too. He asked about the six-figure income, how fast you can get to a six-figure income. And um, in my experience, it took about, let's see, it was about four or five years uh, till I actually got to pretty much a six-figure income. And that's how I was working my butt off, though. Uh, but I think uh, if you're a hard, hard worker, you can get there fairly quickly. Well, how about in your experience? I mean, what? how long did it take, say, you back when you started? Well, you are definitely a harder worker than me, that is for sure. Um, and uh, it took me a while. It took me, man, I can't think of, I've, I've shared it before on the show, and it was over 10 years. It was, mm. well, it was about the 10-year mark, um, and it was partially because, you know, getting stuck at the regional for so long and, and just the way things were and the pay cut that we took for a little while and all that. But uh, I'd say probably about the ninth or 10th year at the regional airline, it's really hard to nail down that $100,000 figure because when do you get hired? Are you going to get hired and spend three to four years at a regional and get lucky enough to get picked up at a major? Or what does that mean? You know, you know how long is it going to take for you to go through the whole process? And that is really dependent on a lot of variables that you can control some of them, but you can't control a lot of them. The economy, uh, how many pilots uh, are, are, you know, available to be hired. What are the hiring needs for different airlines? So really it's hard to put a year, uh, a time frame on that hundred thousand dollar mark. Cause it is a moving target. Great. Oh man, that was very well said, Robert. I love that because it is a moving target. Uh, I'll give you a good example. Here, I made it to six-figure income quicker, but I also was on furlough for two and a half of those years. Uh, so that that was making no money. Now, why is it that I made that much money? Because we also had another downturn. And here's a funny thing about this. A little anomaly during downturns. Every so often, if you're in a base that's furloughed and they furloughed a lot of people, you might wind up working more. I know it sounds weird, but sometimes they over furlough and they try to do more with less. And that's what happened to me is I kept getting junior assigned, junior man pay, they call it, and all the time. Uh, so that wasn't that was pretty abnormal. It was like uh, I was working real hard, but not because I wanted to. It's just because. They were so darn short, and that was uh, caused by that. Um, but but going back to the Canadian thing, Robert, uh, this person from Canada wants to know, like, with say with like Air Canada Jazz, 
looking at some of the regional pay. There's, like I said, they're on the websites and all. I mean, moving up to captain, uh, you're looking at in just say a three-year captain's making like 85 bucks an hour. Uh, it's not, you can definitely do like 10%, 20% more than that. Uh, how do you figure out your salary? There's kind of some really neat pay calculators out there. Uh, but you can you can really get yourself to a point where you're making that annual salary of a hundred thousand by working extra hours. Um, but if you look at something like uh, just uh, I'm just picking on one airline right now, Air Canada Jazz. You're looking at upgrade times there, and on the depending on the airplane, uh, you're looking at like a, the hires for the upgrades were you know 2006, 2005 for the jet. Uh, so you're you're going to be working there a little while till you get that upgrade. So you got to look back at the at the first officer pay scale, and uh, you know, third year pay you're only looking at fifty seven. Well, is it worth it? Well, yeah, it could be worth it because you're building hours. Um, and you know the, what I do is I take the whatever the hourly rate, say it's fifty seven dollars per hour. Let's say for a third year FO on the CRJ, just that, multiply that by a thousand. That's fifty seven thousand a year. Add about 10 to 20%, depending on the type of work you do. Uh, I tell people if you're a hard worker, work the system well at least 20%, and some people can add you know, 30 to 40% even onto that. Uh, so that's usually what I do. I do at least 20% more than the hourly rate as far as my uh, what I make for that year. So hopefully that's kind of helped out. I think both of us are saying the same thing. Robert is saying, hey, listen, you know, it's a moving target and it really, it's important to know when you get hired and you can't predict the future because you could get hired with a company and then all of a sudden they start furloughing, not because it's a bad economy, just because of the fact that, uh, you know, they did something business-wise that just didn't work out. So they have to furlough. Hopefully that helps. Um, anyway, let's move on to the next question. Uh, and of course, you know, if you have another question, send it in feedback at aviation careers podcast. Next question comes in says, Carl, I listen to your podcast every day and I cannot stop for the last nine months. I've been thinking about changing careers. I'm currently a CNC machinist and I like my job, but my dream is to become an airline pilot. I'm a married man with two kids. My wife works full time and we had serious conversations about me starting flight school and eventually college. I'd love some advice. I'm 35 years old and I'm not scared to do this. And I look at it as an investment when it comes down to doing some financing or even paying as I go. My only concern is that I've been to school for about 18 years and I actually went, I have not been to school for about 18 years and I actually went to school while I was living in El Salvador. So tell me if this should be an issue of learning and processing a lot of information during training and keeping up so much info. I've been reading a lot about various aircraft and IFR, and it gets a little intimidating, but I want to go for it. What do you think I should do? You have been the most inspirational person I know. Thank you so much. I'm hoping to get some coaching from you soon, and thanks. Well, I appreciate that question. I personally, I would read as much as I can, start doing some online quizzes. Uh, It doesn't have to be related to aviation, and just soak in as, as much as you can. It does sometimes get tougher to learn as you get older. I have found that's not totally true because I can concentrate better than I did when I was younger for some reason. I know that'll change. I'm I'm starting to, the whole retention as far as names is concerned, I can't remember what I had for breakfast. Those kind of issues are true, but when it comes to studying, I'm okay. But I would really try to, uh, don't, don't, you know, overthink this. I think you're over, you're young. Um, 
I get it. You've been out of school for a while. You haven't been in the testing mode. It comes back to you. It really does. I know uh, sometimes when we're in an airline and we're working for many years on the same airplane and all of a sudden we got to change airplanes, like, oh my gosh, now I got to change airplanes. I've been flying this plane for so long. Uh, and you're like, oh, can I do this? And of course you can. Robert, I think you, you're a good example. I mean, how long was it that you were on that same airplane and then you switched to a new one? <laughs> Ten and a half years. <laughs> it, was, it was a hard switch. <laughs> but is it challenging? Yes, it can be. Absolutely. Is it impossible? No, it's not. And if you're really, if this is something that you're absolutely passionate about and it's something that you want to do, It'll be like riding a bike if you haven't in a while. You get on one after you've been off for 10 years, you wobble a little bit, but then you get the hang of it again. And that's kind of what it's like. You'll, you'll develop those study habits again, and you'll figure out what's works. Does group study work for you? Does flashcards work for you? You know, um, if it's something that you really want to do and you're passionate, uh, don't psych yourself out. It's definitely doable. You just, um, I've, I was just reading a book about learning and how we uh, synthesize learning and all those, uh, and how our brains work. And one of the uh, big points that I took away with, if you want to do something and you're passionate about it, uh, it actually makes a learning process easier um, because you're, you're wanting to engage and you're wanting to focus. So just take that passion that you have and go all in with it and uh, you'll figure out how to make it work. Uh, so yeah, like I think Carl said, don't overthink it. Don't psych yourself out. Just uh, if you have the means to do it, uh, jump in and, and uh, I think you'll surprise yourself. That's some good advice. That's some awesome advice, by the way, Robert. What do you mind sharing with us the book that you're reading? Uh, actually, it was um, it was a firearms book. It was about a, a firearms instruction, so it was de- uh, more towards uh, the shooting industry. Um, and I'm looking for it. Uh, it's not mentoring shooters by. It might be mentoring shooters by Dustin P. Salmon, but he did another book too, uh, more geared towards actually. Uh, how an instructor should teach and how learning is synthesized. And I wish I, I'm looking on my bookcase right now and I don't see it, but that's the author, Dustin P. Selman. His other book was Mentoring Shooters. And he's got another one, and I can't think of the name of it, but uh, same author. If you look it up, I bet you'll find it. Awesome. And we'll kind of kind of hang on to that one. It might be something people are interested in and, and share it with you in a link in the, in the podcast notes here. Uh, so just go to aviationcareerspodcast.com and take a look at the show notes there, and we'll leave it down there. Um, really, it's interesting, though, how we do change when we're interested in our studies. Uh, I know, Robert, when I was in college, there were certain classes I didn't do very well in because I wasn't interested uh, I did very well when the professor said, "Hey, you got to do better," and and you're failing, so you need to get get this done, and you know, kind of turned it around, but also made it interesting for me, and gave me a reason, and figured out the why I was in that class. Uh, I'm sure you've had those same classes too, Robert, right? Well, yeah. So a perfect example. When I was in school, I hated, hated, hated chemistry and biology with a passion. Couldn't stand mm-hmm. it. Physics, I loved physics because physics I could actually apply because I learned to fly. You know, I started learning to fly in high school. I could apply that to going and flying on the weekends, um, and I could apply that to what I was doing. And maybe chemistry to a little extent, but uh, I absolutely hated those two courses and did not do as well as I did in physics. In physics, I did really well because I, I liked it and I could apply it to aviation so i was therefore passionate about it so it's kind of funny how that works and uh now it's uh, go full circle um i'm into like uh 
you know, we had a farm for a while and gardening and biology was something that I was soaking up like a sponge because at that point in time, I was very interested in it. So it's kind of, if you're passionate about it and you want to learn and you want to put the commitment in to learn, you will learn it. You will, you will follow that passion and doing it. So, um, I guess that was my point about, uh, about following your passion. Uh, when you, when you're excited about something, you're going to soak it up. Yeah, most definitely. Great point. Uh, anything, you know, in life, you know, when we start doing things like ham radio, uh, sailing, any type of golf, et cetera, something we really love, we're, we're definitely gonna go out there and learn it. And you love aviation. So if, you know, by writing in, I can tell that you'll, you'll do fine because you really are excited about it. And by the way, the IFR stuff, it's always intimidating, you know, even to this day, cause they keep changing the rules and stuff like that. And there's, there's new items out there and new approaches and descend vias, climb vias, you know, those kind of things. I know that's not totally new, but it's it's oh, new for some, <laughs> you know. Such a headache when that came out. <laughs> but uh, and by the way, we we had a had a whole episode and an article about that. If you want to learn about doing the descent vias and, and climb vias, um, anyway, it was kind of a headache when it came out. You're right. People were kind of messing it up, weren't they? But uh, yeah, that's... I just I just remember the uh, the the constant uh, stuff the company would put out about phraseology. ATC didn't understand it. Pilots didn't understand it. It was a mess. But I digress. <laughs> yeah, it, it was a mess. Let's uh, let's move on to the next question here. Uh, this is a great question, uh, and it's a medical question. And, and you know you're gonna you're gonna know the answer. You've probably heard it a million times. I'm gonna go ahead and read this question. Uh, it says, "I'm 37 and looking to pursuing my goals of becoming a career pilot." I previously had a health issue with ulcerative colitis years ago, but my hemoglobin levels are normal again and have not had any flare-ups. I also take Wellbutrin, and after doing research, I saw that it's a medication that is not approved by the FAA. I have found conflicting information. Some have said I cannot get approval by the FAA, but it's handled on a case-by-case basis, and some information suggests that I need to speak to an AME about getting off it and then being evaluated. In addition to that, I have found even more information that says if you take any sort of antidepressants, the FAA will blacklist you immediately if you go to an AME for, excuse me, go to an AME for a medical. Who could I contact to get a clear and accurate information? I'll tell you who you can contact. I have my own, you know, Robert might have theirs, but the people that I turn everybody to, if there's a website, aviationmedicine.com, I will have it in the links at the bottom. Uh, these are the people that I've referred people to. I've actually used myself uh, when I've had some medical issues with the FAA, and they have been really terrific about helping out. Even when people have gone to AMEs, their aviation medical examiner locally, that's what an AME is, and they've said there's no way you can do this, kind of like the conflicting information you're getting. These are the people that have done it in the past, uh, and they've worked with people in a similar situation like yourself. Many of the airlines, many of the unions, actually, the airlines use aviationmedicine.com. Are there other, others out there? Yes, but uh, for the most part, I send you know 90% of my people to this one here, to aviationmedicine.com. And, uh, I don't know, Robert, do you have any other uh, references for that? Uh, no, and you actually gave that reference to me uh, personally when I was going through sleep study stuff, uh, which were negative, by the way, no sleep apnea, hallelujah. Um, right. So uh, so you actually gave me that reference, and I think that is the best reference. So I second what Carl said. He's uh, sending you to a good place. 
Yeah, and you're going to pay a fee, by the way, when you go there, but it's well worth the fee. It's not that much money, and and you're looking at a career in aviation. Remember this, too. Uh, I know I go to a doctor, an aviation medical examiner, who has a lot of experience with airline pilots and has been doing this for a long time. It depends on the examiner you go to. You may get different information. So, Robert, I'm sure you go to a guy who's pretty experienced, a gal who's pretty experienced in uh, working with airline pilots. Yeah, actually, my guy is uh, probably one of the most popular in Houston area, and unfortunately, he just had a stroke. But uh, he's been, yeah, and I hope he's. Uh, I, I wish him well, and he's one of the best doctors. And uh, I heard he might be coming back at the end of this month. I heard a rumor, so I'm crossing my fingers and hoping it's true because I go in April. So uh, he, uh, but yes, find one that uh, you trust. Uh, the one I use is very trusted by pilots. He's not uh out to get you he's an advocate for you um and those are the kind those are the good kind of ames to find um so yes uh, i have a very good guy so yeah if you're thinking about changing ames uh be careful uh also <laughs> i decided i was going to use some some ame that i didn't know and i got dinged on my medical and spent about four thousand dollars getting my medical back so it got quite expensive it was worth it, but I used uh, these folks here at AMAS to help out. AviationMedicine.com, uh, Aviation Medical Advisory Service. That's what I meant by AMAS. Uh, terrific people, great to work with. And uh, actually, I should have them. I, I keep talking about it. I should have them on the show. I talk about them so much. <laughs> but anyway, continue on. This will be our last question for this episode. It's a long one, but very interesting. Uh, it starts off with, I wanted to start out by thanking you and your team for a great work you put into the podcast. It's not only informative, but entertaining as well. First, a little bit about me. I'm 43 years old and a 20-year Navy submariner that is getting ready to retire early next year. I've always had an interest in aviation as my dad owned a Cessna 182 that was used to take out flying all the time when I was a kid. I never pursued an aviation career due to some things that happened in my younger life that were a higher priority. This is what eventually led me to my career in the Navy, and my focus came to be on my career and my family. I'm beginning the journey to get my private pilot's license with my ultimate goal of getting my CFI rating and work as a flight instructor. I already have a great job in the maritime industry as an electronics officer on board commercial and government contracted vessels lined up for when I get out. The nice part of this job is that I will make a very good salary and also have the time between trips to work on my ratings. My schedule will typically be about three months out at sea, followed by about three months in port where I'm not doing any work except possibly some short training schools I might have to attend. Otherwise, I'll be available for the entire month to focus on pursuing my aviation goals. With that being said, my current job in the Navy as, as an instructor, and I really do enjoy teaching. Do you think it'd be possible to dovetail a CFI job at a local flight school with my at-sea schedule? I'm just not sure if a flight school would be interested in hiring someone who would come and go like myself, or if my short stays would have a negative impact on students' learning, as they might have to find another instructor when I leave. Could I get some higher or specialized ratings, such as an MEI, CFWI, C-planes, etc., that would allow me to focus on training for those specialized students and make it worth with my schedule? Somewhat on a different topic, but, uh, well, anyway, let's answer that question before we go on to this next next question here. Uh, it's possible to do what you want to do. I would suggest uh, uh, maybe going uh, and instructing with a, a club 
or just going out there as an independent instructor and work with individuals that maybe want to do flight reviews, keep current. Because remember, as a flight instructor, you're not just getting people ratings. You're also keeping them current. Is Are people willing to work, you know, wait three months to get current? Of course they are. Uh, sometimes they have to get it done right away. But as far as the rating is concerned, when you work for like a big school that does a 141, they're switching instructors all the time and that type of thing. That might work there, but it's going to be hard to convince somebody at a 141 school to allow you to come in part-time to do some of these things. If you're, say, a Czech pilot that does uh, maybe some of the different at a 141 school that just does uh, like stage checks and things like that, that's a possibility. You can fill in and do stage checks, but to be a primary instructor, yes, you're right. That's going to be somewhat difficult. Doing those things like the stage checks and Keeping people current, ah, man, that's that's wonderful. I would definitely, you know, get your CFI and do that. That's the way you can dovetail it. But uh, having consistency with a student, especially in the beginning, I think is is really important. So, Robert, I'd love to hear, you know, kind of what your thoughts are on any other ideas besides what I just talked about. Yeah, I would think that that there would definitely be some challenges in the CFI area, and it sounds that's what he what he wants to do. Um, as far as Maybe you might be able to find uh, – so, so it's hard to – three months on and three months off is definitely a obstacle that you're going to have to overcome. Uh, maybe banner towing, something like that, uh, doing that kind of flying that you could come in and there's no students that are negatively affected. I'm just thinking of what the instructors that did part-time back when I was a flight instructor at our, at our flight school. Uh, we did have part-time guys, but the problem was they would come in very rarely – maybe once or twice a week or maybe once or twice every two weeks to work with special students and then he would sign them off. But the, the three months on three months off is going to be hard to overcome because you can't break that learning, that learning cycle. Cause it's almost like starting all over. Maybe you could partner with other CFIs to come in and do a tag team. If you, if you are able to work with some CFIs that have a busy schedule, that might work. Uh, but, uh, maybe as far as flying right now where you're doing a job of three month off of three month on find something that would be a little easier to just step back into uh, where there is not the learning uh, regression that you get from that much time off. Um, I don't know. I wish I had a, wish I had a better answer for that, Carl. I, I really don't know. That one's kind of a, kind of a thinker though. It is, it is. And, um, you know, those type of temporary jobs, it, other than just doing a stage deck here and there. Oh, another one uh, I've heard, uh, skydiving, uh, banner towing, those are jobs that can be like temporary type jobs, especially in the Northeast. Uh, you know, in the winter, you're not going to maybe do as many, et cetera. So uh, those are the kind of things you can just jump into, filling in part-time. Uh, the instructing part of it, though, you know, like you said, it's it's hard to do primary instructing other than just doing stage checks. So you're right. It's a tough one. Uh, is yeah. it impossible? Nah, nah, just keep your thinking cap on, right? <laughs> we, and, and that's really what's important because a lot of times you are going to come up with the best answer and fall into something, but I really encourage you to keep your eyes and ears open, that's for sure. You know, uh, he continued in his email, and I cut it off there. It says, uh, he says, someone on a different topic, uh, but you have any? do you have any data on aerial firefighting and how to get into the career field? 
I was a wildland firefighter in the BLM, uh, Bureau of Land Management, prior to my Navy service and worked with some amazing people flying rotary wing and fire bombers. Perhaps this could be a subject for an upcoming podcast. Uh, yes, we've had people that have done uh, aerial firefighting. I, gosh, I wish I could remember the episode that they were on. But yes, there uh, we'll definitely have somebody else back on who's done this. And uh, I think that's a great suggestion to get an aerial firefighter out here, uh, both for rotary and also for fixed wing. Uh, but anyway, he continues once again. Thanks for all the help and the great work you and everyone at ABC Curse Podcast does. I really appreciate you, the listener, and these great questions. They're they're wonderful and they're very challenging for us. And we absolutely love them because it challenges us to go out and find the answers. By the way, if we don't have an answer to your question, we will still read it, uh, just like we did with the the F-15 guy, and uh, and we'll get you an answer. Uh, I can come up with a short answer real quick, like I said, but uh, without doing the research, I'm not willing to, to give it a definite answer on that. Uh, that was just an off-the-top-of-my-head off head type of thing. Uh, in general, like I said, with the, the airlines, uh, everybody in the right seats uh, or second-in-command, and uh, you can log all the landings and takeoffs and instrument approaches you want. You just can't log pilot-in-command. Uh, hopefully that helps, and we will get you an answer in the future. Robert, that was uh, that was all we have. I mean, we, we're starting to get through some of these emails. It's pretty exciting, isn't it? It is, yeah. Maybe we'll actually be caught up to where we need to be here in the next couple of months. Awesome. Uh, I, I almost hope we never catch up because that means people aren't writing in enough. Uh, we could do a daily show and still, uh, you know, have many, many questions. And but, but with that said, I jokingly, it's it's great to do these. I've been focusing on them, as you notice. We haven't had as many guests on because we've been trying to bang these out. Uh, we may come up with a few more uh, that will be in between episodes. And uh, I can encourage you also. Some of those topics like climb vias, uh, cruise clearance. What's a cruise clearance? We're going to talk about that next on uh, Stuck Mike Avcast. That's our general aviation podcast. Check it out over there. Um, we just, a uh, little announcement there I forgot to put in the beginning. Aviation Cruise Podcast just came, uh, uh, finished its mil- one millionth download from you listeners, and that's been terrific, and we appreciate that. Uh, and those folks over there at the Aviation Cruise Podcast are just a, a fun bunch, and uh, what an amazing uh, team and an amazing group of people. It's more of a, a roundtable discussion along with some episodes with interviews. We try to bring you live events like uh, Sun and Fun. Uh, Air Venture, uh, Sebring, the Lightsport Aircraft, all those type of events. We love to do reporting out there in the field. Uh, well, Robert, I, I appreciate you coming back again, uh, and you've been a great and, and happy new year to you and a, uh, a terrific uh, co-host here and bring a, a whole other perspective on on what's happening in, in the world of flying. And, and I know that you still love your flying and you still love your job, and that's, uh, that's one of the reasons we, we like having you on here. You're still passionate about what you do. I do. I couldn't imagine doing anything else. And uh, I, I also appreciate the challenges of the questions. And uh, like, for instance, you mentioned cruise clearance, and I'm trying to think of what that is now. Mm-hmm. I pre- <laughs> so so <laughs> I'm challenged, and I got to go look it up. So thanks, Cole. Yeah. So, well, that's okay. <laughs> Actually, this is our, that was our question of the week is, you know, what is a cl- cruise clearance? The reason that I came up with that question is, uh, I've become uh, friends with the manager for Orlando and uh, for the FA, and he said that that's one of the things that most people screw up. And I was like, really? I said, great. Well, I know the answer. I'm not going to tell you. you got to listen to the next episode that comes out on the 15th. So uh, yes. anyway. <laughs> 
That's a tease. I would <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you, this is again, you know, the person that asked about studying an IFR, you know, it really is hard to remember everything, uh, especially in the IFR world. And I know I constantly am reading and, uh, and, you know, I do interview prep, so obviously I get to see it a lot more and I discuss these things over and over. But if I didn't do the interview prep, I wouldn't be able to answer that question. That's for darn sure. So, uh, anyway, again, thanks for being a Robert. This has been terrific. And, uh, it's always good to hear another perspective. If you are a person that wants to be a guest on the show, you have a, any type of story that you feel would inspire others to move forward in their careers or if you are somebody that works in the field that wants to relate what they do in the aviation field to our listeners, and remember, it's not just flying airplanes. It's everything. There's so many jobs in aviation, mechanics, flight attendants, managers. I, I would love to hear from you. And if you, if you want to do that, there's a link at the bottom of the podcast that you can go to. It says, How to Be a Guest on Aviation Careers Podcast, How to Schedule a Time. And we'll just do a one-on-one, very conversational type of thing. Hey, what is it you do? How do you get into what you're doing? And why do you like it? And what are the challenges? That's really what we want to hear uh, from everybody that's in a career in aviation. Well, folks, one thing that I, I always leave with, and this is the first, uh, you know, the beginning of the new year, is make sure you do something today to move forward in your career. Take one step today, one step right now towards your career goal. We'll talk to you next episode and stay flying. You have been listening to Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. This aviation podcast is produced by the Valeri Aviation Corporation. Although host or guests may receive compensation for products and services discussed in this podcast, compensation never influences our opinion. Before purchasing any product or service, you should always do your own research. Music by Billy Wheeler. All rights reserved.